really glad we got to talk about really a spectrum of studies um, that, that cover the range of, of science and healthcare delivery. When saving lives is what you do, your standards are anything but standard. In fact, you set them higher than most to deliver results that patients can depend on. You refuse to compromise. We couldn't agree more. We are Edwards Life Sciences, and like you, we believe that good is never good enough. Rising to the challenge of today's TAVR patients isn't just a mission, it's a commitment. And because you set a higher standard, we set our sights on meeting you there. Welcome to the higher standard, your standard. Learn more at edwardstaver.com. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD from the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Uh, we're closing in on 2021. And um, to everyone who's uh, celebrating um, the uh, you know, upcoming holiday season, uh, season's greetings from um, the entire team at, at Parallax um, and Ratcliffe Group Limited. Um, so moving forward, my guest on today's show is, um, is a special person. Um, he is the vice chair of scientific sessions at the American Heart Association annual scientific sessions, is a professor of medicine at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, and also the director of preventive cardiology, uh, Dr. Amit Kera. Um, so Dr. Kera, welcome on the show, and thank you so much for doing this for us at such a short notice. Um, it's a pleasure to have you um, amongst our listenership at Parallax. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kavra, for, for having me today. I'm, I'm really excited to share a little bit about sessions and some of the big trials and to chat with you and your, your audience about this. Um, absolutely. So, you know, without much further ado, let's dive in. Um, so the scientific sessions um, at American Heart Association annual scientific sessions was, was another virtual event. Um, I'm, I'm positive both you and I are hoping that come 2022, we actually get to meet each other in person um, because, you know, that's one of the biggest draws and charms of the meeting is to meet colleagues and friends from around the globe, essentially, you know, in person and, and get to know a little bit more about their lives. Um, but, you know, again, despite all the challenges uh, that everyone has, has faced, uh, I think it was an incredibly well-organized uh, scientific sessions virtually. And some incredible science was presented. And, you know, the the reason why I wanted to do this episode with you was to sort of uh, garner your insights as to what you think were, you know, three studies which were presented at the scientific sessions, which you thought um, are either practice informing or practice changing, you know, for um, the entire gamut and spectrum of patients that you see, you know, both in clinic as well as in the hospital. Thanks for that sort of, you know, orientation to sessions. I, I couldn't agree with you more. We we uh, all certainly wish and hope for an in-person event. Obviously, that means that we're all in a safer place societally. So we, we are uh, really focused on an in-person visit uh, meeting next year. But, you know, we're all learning. We do take some positives away. We're learning about the virtual platform and 
who are able to reach people all over the world and bring in discussants from all over the world in ways that we haven't been before. So we're, we're hopeful to take these new learnings with us. And, you know, as you're pointing out, the core, some of the core findings of the meetings, the most excitement is around these late breakers. Of course, there's tons of other content, but I'm glad we're, we're focusing on the late breakers. And, and I will talk about three today. And the, the first one I wanted to talk about was a study called Avatar. And, you know, we had seven late breaking sessions. This was the first trial presented in the first session. And the reason we chose this was there was something very special in our trials this year. We had uh, at least four large randomized cardiothoracic surgery trials. And, you know, that those are very hard to do and you don't see many of them. And these were really all well done and we think practice changing. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Avatar. Um, as you know, well, this was a randomized trial with a very important clinical question. For those that are symptomatic, fairly straightforward what to do. Even we have data now in those with very severe aortic stenosis, you know, uh, peak velocity is greater than five meters per second. But these folks were asking about asymptomatic, maybe a little less severe, but yet severe aortic stenosis. And, you know, whether we should be doing prophylactic aortic valve replacement, I think that's a critically important clinical question. Yes, um, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you, you know, I mean, both you and I see these patients I would say not infrequently in our practices. And let's begin by, um, you know, asking you a question as to what is your current or what has been, you know, prior to the findings of the avatar trial, which was presented at the American Heart Association, what has been your clinical practice in managing these patients in the office? Yeah, right. And things are changing, obviously, you know, the, uh, those with, with very severe stenosis, peak velocity is greater than five meters per second. We, we have had, you know, guidelines and a recent trial in the New England Journal of Medicine suggesting that, you know, prophylactic interventions in those individuals um, can be beneficial. But this group with a little less severe aortic stenosis, velocities greater than four meters per second, you know, meeting the severe criteria, but, but truly without symptoms. So in this study, uh, you know, they, they, they actually had them do a, an exercise treadmill test to confirm that they really were asymptomatic individuals. And those individuals, you know, my practice is, is, is watchful, close waiting, seeing them frequently, at least every six months, being very intentional about interrogating for symptoms. Um, many of us obviously will do a, a stress testing uh, to elicit whether or not there actually are some hemodynamic uh, complications or exercise intolerance. So, you know, really watching them closely, doing some investigations. But, you know, up till now, um, really, we weren't doing prophylactic intervention. So that's where this is a very thought-provoking study in, in changing the way we practice. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so why don't I have you talk more about the, about the study? So, you know, essentially a physician-initiated trial, uh, about 160 patients. And like you said, uh, valve area less than one, mean gradient of 40 or more, and a, and a peak velocity of over four meters per second. So, you know, meets all the traditional criteria for diagnosing severe aortic stenosis. You know, like you said, it's not very severe. Um, mean age was about 67 STS with score, which is Society of Thoracic Surgeons uh, predicted risk of mortality score is some of, is one of the scores we use in outpatient clinics, uh, to document what is the risk for that individual patient going into that procedure it was about less than 8%. And so again, patients that we see in our practices, not uncommonly, um, what, what were the findings Dr. Kara for this? 
Sure. And just to add to that, of course, we, we want to round out, you know, this was was nine centers uh, in, in seven EU countries, but lar- largely from one center. So we'll sort of talk about the pros and cons of the study. But uh, as you were just discussing, had to have severe aortic stenosis, but excluded those with symptoms on a stress test, those with very severe aortic stenosis greater than 5.5 meters per second. Um, and then they were randomized, 157 individuals, to conservative treatment, essentially what what we generally do, or um, to early surgery. Now, again, that's not what we normally do. And I, I, having spoken to investigators myself, I give them a lot of credit because this trial started several years ago. It takes a while to accrue st- uh, patients in such a trial, so their forethought was was quite good at that time. Um, ultimately, what they what they were looking at um, was uh, you know adverse cardiovascular outcomes. The primary outcome was um, all cause death in MACE, uh, which included. Acute MI, stroke, and unplanned hospitalization. Um, so that was the primary endpoint. Now, you know, th- it was not a very large trial, as mentioned, 157 or so individuals. Uh, but what they found was a marked reduction in the primary endpoint. Um, you know, the the uh, 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 event rates looking at this, the hazard ratio was 0.46, so 50% reduction in um, in events in, in patients in the uh, early surgery group. Now, looking at it numerically, you can imagine there were 26 and 13 events, so not a large number. So there's one limitation. These are always challenges in the surgical studies. So any individual endpoint will be a little harder to interpret, but that was consistent. Uh, All-cause death was uh, 16 in the conservative versus nine in in the early surgery, and heart failure, uh, seven in the conservative and and one in the early surgery. Um, You know, the operative mortality, as we know, for aortic stenosis in general, especially those that aren't that ill is quite low, only 1.4% um, operative mortality. You know, so in total, I, I think what this this tells us is, one, uh, reminds us that surgery is generally safe in those without a lot of comorbidity undergoing um, aortic valve replacement. The second thing is, you know, this watchful waiting, a, a lot of bad things happen during that time. Here, we at least saw a trend towards all-cause mortality, but, uh, you know, and even heart failure hospitalizations or treatment for heart failure. So it really does make us think about this, about uh, how this will impact guidelines, whether one study, you know, reasonable size for a surgical study, but but not not terribly large, you know, to what extent that will impact guidelines. But I do think it will inform guidelines. Um, and, and one thing which you and I can certainly talk about, which has come up is, you know, to what extent does this translate to, to TABR? Uh, this was a, a, a SAVR uh, surgical group, so early surgery um, using SAVR, not with TAVR. So a lot of questions have come up about about that, about how this translates. Yes, um, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm glad you you brought up TAVR as well because you know that sort of becomes um, not only a physician choice but also a patient choice because of the um, invasive nature of you know, surgery, I mean, don't get me wrong, TAVR is also an invasive procedure, but in comparison with surgical aortic valve replacement, it's a much less invasive procedure compared with, you know, open heart surgery. Um, and so it's a, it's a request which is often driven by patients and their families. And, um, you know, I think um, whether or not we can extrapolate these results to transcatheter aortic valve replacement, I, I do know we have a an early TAVR tra- trial that's currently enrolling patients. I think that'll answer that question for us. Um, so knowing what we know now, uh, you know, you know, for example, the, the Avatar trial, as you mentioned, was a difficult enrollment. Um, I'm not sure how 
um, quickly will early TAVR enroll. Um, I think it may be easier uh, to enroll in a TAVR trial compared with an open heart surgery trial. But again, that's my own assumption and, and bias, obviously. Um, do you think you can extrapolate these findings to patients who you see in clinic who are requesting that they have a TAVR compared with a SAVR? Yeah, I think you said it right. The short answer is I'm not sure. Um, I, I concur with you. You know, as you said, TAVR is, is often patient-driven. There, there's a lot of patient enthusiasm for, for lesser invasive interventions. As we both know, we still don't that, – that may be the easier way out in some ways, but those things always have to be tested because we – you know, durability, risks, appropriate patient selection. As far as we have seen, as you know well also, you know, in the TAVR space, first starting at the various highest risk, then intermediate and even lower risk, it does seem to be a reasonable alternative to SAVR. I do think the early TAVR trial will answer the question or help answer the question. And to your point, I do think it would be easier to enroll surgical trials. You know, one of the things we, we had a lot of discussion from all our surgeons and had some great commentary, just reminding us how hard these studies are because there's less equipoise going into surgical studies, both from the investigator, maybe even, uh, you know, the surgeons and the patients. So those are harder to enroll. So I do think, as you pointed out, early TAVR could be easier to enroll. You know, my take home on this in the end is we're not sure. So this is, and, and I don't know that we're, we're, we're ready yet to, to, to start operating on patients um, with this indication. But what it does make me do is perhaps lower my bar a little bit we, we, we sort of wait, wait and wait until um, there's either a, a very severe indi- uh, uh, velocity or very severe indicators on the valve or symptoms. And so we sometimes keep that bar a little higher than it needs to be. And that can be a bit subjective. So it certainly makes me realize that um, that bar may be a little bit higher than it needs to be. But to your point, I think we do wait for additional study in this space. And I think early tablet will be very helpful. Excellent. So um, anything else you want to touch base with regard to the findings from the avatar trial, or you think we should move on to the next study? I think, I think we've covered it pretty well. I think we can move on to the next study, but, but, you know, I I do hope that both at the American Heart Association meeting and and others, we continue to see high quality surgical studies. There is a, there's a cardiovascular surgical trials network, and we heard about some trials from them as well. And I, I think these are so important as Avatar, you and I have discussed for, for a bit of time now, is really can be practice changing. So we, we definitely need more studies in this space and hope we continue to see. Yes, that's an important message. You know, I think, um, again, you know, anytime you want to advance the field uh, and push the envelope, uh, there's going to be um, difficulty in enrolling patients um, you know, because it's, it's difficult to convince um, the referring a physician or the referring cardiologist that this is the right thing to do for the patient, uh, that there's equipoise and we need to accrue more data. But I do think it's a service to both, you know, the referring physicians as well as patients. If we can, uh, you know, garner more data into some of these questions, uh, which continue to, um, you know, uh, they're, they're vexing questions to answer and, and they're not um, as straightforward and easy. So I couldn't agree with you more that we do need more randomized clinical trials in the surgical space. Um, so just to sort of, uh, you know, reiterate and facilitate the, the, the comment you made there. Um, so moving on, um, the next study from, so from uh, you know, early intervention uh, to treat uh, a degenerative condition uh, to early intervention in treating 
a chronic disease condition, um, which is one of the most important and important modifiable risk factors for cardiovascular diseases. Uh, and, and that is benign essential hypertension or primary hypertension. And this is um, a study from across the globe, um, you know, which was, uh, I think, pretty neatly performed and conducted by, um, I would say, healthcare providers, um, you know, in China. But I'm going to have you talk more about it. Yeah, thanks for, for that setup again. And I chose this on purpose. You say, why did I choose these three? You know, we start from one extreme, which is, you know, advanced surgical techniques and, and, and the surgical trials is something quite different, but, but incredibly impactful. So I am a preventive cardiologist. And again, to the AHA mission, you know, is, is population health. Hypertension is the leading preventable cause of cardiovascular death in the world. So, you know, hypertension is a, a scourge and whether we're in low and middle income countries or high income countries, we are not doing very well in its management. And, 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 and if we have time, we certainly can talk about some other hypertension work that came out at AHA. But this is a really interesting study. And, and here it's about innovation. Everyone knows high blood pressure is bad and needs to be uh, addressed and treated. But how do we accomplish it? What are strategies? Now we, we have to go beyond just documenting the problem. But, you know, what are some creative and innovative strategies and ones that scale on, on broad levels, not on just a one-off patient level? So here, um, this was a, a study out of China. Um, just to remind you, you know, high blood pressure, first given the magnitude of the population size, but, you know, in China, about 28% of the population or 292 million Chinese adults have hypertension, and that's defined at 140. It's, it's even higher at 130. So, so, you know, treatment, there's a large problem, a huge number of people, and that's, that's beyond the, you know, adult population of the U.S. in those numbers, just in the hypertensive folks in, in China. And then treatment rates are, are quite poor. So there certainly is a need for, for innovation. Here, what they did was they in, invoked a, a village doctor. So these are sort of quasi-health professionals. They're not formally trained physicians, but they have some health role. And they sort of anointed them to um, help in, in, in blood pressure management. And uh, in a large randomized trial in, in different um, in villages in China, uh, I'll tell you more in just a minute, but um, so really the, the, the part that's what's, what's amazing here is, again, not using traditional healthcare workers and, and, and then using these sort of local village doctors to, to administer the hypertension treatment in a large group of individuals to see how that would impact blood pressure care. No, you know, it's, again, I mean, it's a, it's a neat concept. Um, I think it's, um, it resonates, um, or is, I would say it's very similar to um, the concept of a social healthcare worker in India, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had my medical school training and, and residency training initially uh, in the early 2000s in, in India. And, um, you know, I remember as a fourth year medical student uh, working with preventive and social medicine and going to these primary health centers or rural, rural health centers where we would work with, um, you know, social healthcare workers uh, who would then, deliver, you know, the basic minimum primary care that's required to keep the village or that community healthy. So um, I think, again, um, a concept which I think is is relevant for, um, you know, several countries. And no, I mean, I, I wouldn't call uh, China as a lower, lower middle income country, but, you know, a concept that is relevant in populous countries with, um, you know, low and middle income economies 
uh, and and also uh, I think is an extremely important concept to talk about, you know, for our listenership because, you know, as um, cardiovascular healthcare providers, I should say, um, I think the the vast majority of burden or the scourge of disease that that we treat and care for actually is in the de- in the developing world. Um, so it's extremely crucial as an as an important uh, public health uh, message and a public health intervention. Uh, but I'm going to have you talk about the intervention in, in depth or in detail for our listeners. Yeah, well, you certainly have great perspective on that, as you pointed out. And so, as you know, well, we just need different strategies in different areas, as you have seen. And, you know, in this study, what they did, they took uh, 326 um, uh, villages from, from China and they randomized the village. So that was a unit of randomization, 163 in each arm to this village doctor led intervention where, you know, this village doctor, the, the para health professional did have contact. They would follow sort of a usual algorithm. And then they had the ability to access a, um, a, a st- standard physician um, as sort of backup and support for more challenging cases. So in these villages, it ended up being a, a quite a large number of individuals. There were 33,000 people that were randomized in this trial. Um, they were a bit older, mean age 63. Um, again, they all had to have hypertension um, as an inclusion criteria. Um, so they had to have a systolic above 140 or diastolic above 90 um, or treated above 130 over 80. So sort of our more traditional hypertension uh, levels for enrollment. So here's the thing is when they sort of initiated this algorithm with these paraprofessionals, the reason this was an amazing study was to me, the magnitude of blood pressure improvement. So their primary outcome was the proportion of individuals that were getting less than 130 over 80 at 18 months. And the difference was 57% achieved this in intervention uh, uh, villages versus about 20%. That is a 37% absolute difference. That is astronomical in cardiology. You know, just as an aside, there's this great algorithm out of Kaiser where they, you know, implemented and it took over several years improved blood pressure control from like 60 to almost 80%. You know, this is even a much larger magnitude in a much shorter amount of time uh, in a very innovative way. So to see a 37% difference in blood pressure control is just outstanding. The other part was the blood pressure systolic difference was 26 millimeters of mercury different in the intervention, and it was 12 millimeters of mercury different in the usual care. So, you know, 14 millimeters of mercury difference, that is a huge number. You know, from a population level, even two or three millimeters of mercury is is meaningful for changing cardiovascular events and cardiovascular deaths. So that is really astronomical, a really exciting finding. Of course, this is you know n of one in terms of, of of trials. But you know we we when we looked at this study and we were trying to choose the best studies with our with our committee, um, this the innovation here, the population potential impact of a demonstration project of a novel way to address hypertension in a unique setting. Um, and most importantly, you know, the magnitude of change in blood pressure was, was quite impressive. So uh, we really were excited about this study. Again, to your point, you've seen different methods in, in India, as you mentioned, of, of using uh, different healthcare type providers. Uh, but, but this is really exciting. And, you know, in, in a minute, we can probably chat about this, but there were other sort of, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, high tech, high touch innovations in blood pressure. This is the other end of the spectrum um, that really could be transportable to many places in the world. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you were discussing uh, the findings of the study, um, you know, one of the uh, one of the numbers that you mentioned that actually really um, was was astounding was an absolute risk reduction of 37%. You know, what kind of intervention in terms of drug or device do we see nowadays that has that kind of absolute risk reduction? Um, and, you know, we harp about it and we, we prescribe it and we, uh, we sort of, um, you know, advertise it to, to our patients. I mean, obviously in the right spirit, but here you have um, an, an innovation in healthcare delivery um, with the existing armamentarium of, of therapies that you already know, I think, because I think it was a stepped up care approach uh, based on how you should manage blood pressure based on the U.S. guidelines, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, here you see a 37% absolute risk reduction in one of the most potent modifiable cardiovascular disease risk factors. You know, I mean, I think there's something to be, uh, you know, said about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, and again, you know, that magnitude, as you pointed out, is, is, um, is uh, uh, profound. And, and it's not, it wasn't a, it wasn't a fancy drug or a fancy protocol, right? These were sort of standard protocols that have been applied. Again, I think it started from the Kaiser model with commonly used drugs, step therapy with, uh, you know, thiazide diuretics and uh, other drugs in these algorithms. So nothing, it wasn't the, the, the drugs that were the innovation and it wasn't anything complex. It was the delivery um, and, and the, how they used it uh, and, and how they applied it. So I think hopefully, you know, again, um, they're not, not every place has what we call a village doctor equivalent, but there, there could be something like that in different places. I personally think there probably would have to be some, you know, local or semi-local or cultural um, aspects taken into account in different places around the world. But the concept of using paraprofessionals that are trusted individuals in local settings where it may be harder to access care and to work in a much, you know, to use simplistic tools uh, for population impact. It's, it's really almost the opposite spectrum of what we do in the West and the United States and, and what, a, what an impact we had. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, I think the one study which, uh, you know, just to sort of um, have a, not an allegory, but a, a, a comparator in, in the U.S. because, you know, you know, even in the U.S. we have, um, you know, populations that are underserved and, and challenging, particularly, you know, I, I know the American Heart Association has been at the forefront um, of reducing structural racism for, um, you know, our patients um, as well as uh, care providers. Um, but the one study which, which comes close to, uh, I think, the uniqueness in which the healthcare was delivered for this particular patient population was the, the barbershop study. The in in black barber shops. Do you, do you remember that one? I sure do. Actually, I, and interestingly, the original barbershop study was with the Dallas Heart Study. One of my colleagues, who unfortunately passed away, Ron Victor, who was the architect of the Dallas Heart Study. That was the genesis of it, and then he replicated it in Los Angeles using um, pharmacists and other individuals. Uh, but but to your point, it was exactly what you said. Where you know he started with saying, let let's see who are you know, first, what he did was looked at what were some of the barriers, because we know that in African-Americans, hypertension is, is, is uh, hypertension treatment rates are, are far worse than what we see in, in white populations and other populations, and particularly among African-American men. So I remember Dr. Victor first went and sort of did a study. What, what, what was it? What were some of the barriers? What were some of the beliefs? 
And then, you know, where, where, where can you, where might you access black men in a different way and, and learning about sort of culturally the, the centerpiece of the barbershop and how that played a role in, in these individuals' lives uh, and then designing intervention, first understanding the patient, if you will, or the population, understanding their needs and understanding um, their local environment and then designing the intervention around it. You know, in Dallas, he learned a lot. It wasn't quite as impactful as what he learned, what he, what he did in, in, in Los Angeles, but when they did it again in Los Angeles and then kind of went beyond the structure of it, but then other components, the pharmacist component, um, you know, other innovations really, as you said, uh, had a very impactful blood pressure lowering. Um, in, 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 and now this has been proven. I know we published this in circulation. They've been cost effective to study showing it being cost effective. So um, to your point, uh, an analogy, if you will, in, in the U.S. was the barbershop study. I'll mention one other thing in sessions. I, I keep alluding to this. There was a big study out of the Brigham and Mass General, which was a follow-up to last year. You know, they, they, this, this big data approach where basically they had a, an, an, a, a, uh, a, an algorithm in their EHR, and then they also had this pharmacist-led intervention uh, where it was pharmacists and also navigators, not even navigators, not even officially sort of, uh, 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 you know, medically licensed individuals that where they, they use this, this, this um, EHR intervention to identify people with high blood pressure and high cholesterol, then by a series of sort of some phone calls, but, but largely through a navigator and some texting, they reached out to them, implemented blood pressure and cholesterol management, and in a sizable proportion, several thousand were able to get them to goal, both in blood pressure and cholesterol. And I mentioned that again, because Again, another innovative strategy this way in a healthcare system using an EHR and navigator. So very different than, you know, village doctor led in China, but nevertheless, an impactful way to um, improve blood pressure and cholesterol. And I mentioned that just so that we look at different approaches that can work in different settings, but all with the same goal. Absolutely. And, you know, that actually, the, the, the fact that you mentioned cholesterol and, and an EHR intervention, well, it's not an EHR intervention, but we are going to talk about a cholesterol intervention uh, moving forward to our third study um, for the discussion um, for today's show. And that is, um, I believe, an area that probably excites you quite a bit as a prevent. I mean, I think it should excite all of us as cardiologists, <laughs> but, you know, specifically for you as a preventive cardiologist is an area of active interest in clinical investigation and um, you know, your, your focus in clinical practice, and that is um, a cholesterol-lowering therapy for patients who may be intolerant to statin therapy or, you know, in addition to statin therapy, but I'll have you talk more about it. Um, it's, it's, it's still, in, it's still in, its, uh, in its nascent form in terms of how are we going to talk about the drug, but I, I believe it was MK0616. Did I get that right? You got it right. Uh, yeah, that's a mouthful to say that, but but that tells you where we are. It's a phase two study. So now here's a, a again the, the third opposite end of the spectrum, a a small uh, small drug trial, and I and on purpose I sort of chose this one because you know it's really thought provoking and 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 we'll talk about MK0616, but also what this means to the field in terms of lipid management. So here this was a again a phase two study of an oral PCSK9 inhibitor. So well known to you and, and, and likely your, your audience as well. Uh, we've had, you know, we had what was prematurely thought the death of the lipid field after statins, there was sort of a long pause, you know, Zetamibe came, but then there was, there was not much for a long time, but 
you know, we've really seen the rebirth of the lipid management field that aligned with, you know, for many reasons, part of it, a larger focus on familiar hypercholesterolemia and, you know, uh, recalcitrant high cholesterol. So uh, fortunately, we do have PCSK9 inhibitors. These are largely monoclonal antibodies. Um, they, they work well. They're potent. I prescribe them frequently because I have an FH program and see a lot of patients with premature vascular disease and dyslipidemia. Um, so those work. We have two randomized trials with outcomes showing improvement in cardiovascular outcomes. However, um, those drugs are still reasonably expensive. Uh, here in the U.S., they're about $5,400 a year. And, um, you know, there, there are injections. Now, my personal opinion, I, I, when they first came out, there was a lot of reluctance in the cardiovascular field because we're just not used to injectables. And the rheumatologic and other spaces, no big deal. But for whatever reason, you know, there's just some anxiety around that. Um, you know, in my experience, at least people have tolerated it very well. And once they get over the mental hurdle of a uh, injectable, they do quite well. But some people still don't. That's still not for them. They still don't want to take an injection. There are some occasional side effects or intolerances and cost is still an issue. So this is where this comes into play, which is an oral PCSK9 inhibitor. So to tell you a bit about it, and I learned a lot about it in the presentation itself, one has to get back to why is this such a challenge? Why, why don't we have this already? And part of it has to do with, um, you know, the reason we're with monoclonal antibodies is these prior PCSK9 um, uh, affecting mechanism drugs, they weren't getting absorbed and reaching the target. So they had a, a targeting problem. Um, and, you know, there, there's a problem with absorption of some of these um, uh, peptide and other small molecules that people have tried to develop. So they came up with a workaround. They have this cyclic peptide platform, which we all learned about, where they um, have some absorption of a compound that can uh, target uh, PCSK9. And um, equally as much, one, one nuance here, which I'm sure will come up in our discussion, it does have to be bound to something that helps with uh, what they call a permeation uh, enhancer so that um, it can be absorbed. And that, that did come up in the study where um, there can be some problems with absorption if it's not timed right with a meal. Um, so, so that, that's part of it is, is, uh, timing and, and binding. So they had to come up with a neat, innovative platform to deliver this small molecule, um, to, to, uh, uh, bind with affinity against PCSK9. So this was a, again, a phase two study. They first started with, a, uh, one small study predominantly in men, just looking at different doses and, um, the concentration. I'll skip over that, but talk more about the, the part of the study with 40 individuals, where it was a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind uh, study, multiple doses, um, looking at once daily dosing for 14 days, a short study uh, with this uh, MK0616, different doses, 180 versus 360 milligrams, and also looking at food and the binder. Um, and so, so you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the chase, but what they found was a pretty marked reduction in their, in their uh, highest dose, 360, with the appropriate binder, um, they saw about a 60% reduction in LDL compared um, uh, to baseline in, in this, with use of this medicine, uh, daily dosing. So, you know, we're, we're getting efficacy comparable to what we're getting with um, the injectable PCS, sub-Q PCSK9 inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies in an oral version. Uh, so that, that, again, phase two, not, not fully developed, but the concept of now having an oral version and what we can talk about in a bit, we have an, potentially a, an evolving oral version 
We have a monoclonal antibody sub-Q every other week. And now, at least in Europe already, and perhaps in the U.S. soon, uh, 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 another compound, a a silencing RNA, which can be given every six months. So, boy, from not having many options at all to perhaps in the coming, uh, you know, years having numerous options in this uh, in this targeting pathway. Yeah. So, uh, well, thanks for um, you know taking us through the study. My my first question to you is, what percentage of your patients? I mean, and I'm specifically asking this to you because you would probably see a lot more of of these patients compared with me. You know, who I, I mean, I do prescribe PCSK9 inhibitors, but I, I think in um, you know practices with focus on preventive cardiology and specifically you know patients with statin intolerant, which colleagues like us probably refer to you. Um, what is the percentage of, of, of such patients that you see that you prescribe the injectable PCSK9 for? Yeah, it's a great question. Of course, I have a, as you pointed out, I have an unusual practice. I see all what I like to call the numerators of all the patients that have the issues or problems or, 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 you know, very high lipids that get referred to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, a fair proportion of them. So, so as you pointed out, the individuals where PCSK9 inhibitors currently are FDA approved here are, um, those with familial hypercholesterolemia with residually elevated cholesterol despite maximal statin therapy, or those with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and our guidelines would say if they're very high risk and their LDL is not less than 70 after being on statin and uh, azetamide. You know, when people have modeled that, uh, it, it ends up being, you know, perhaps as much as, you know, 20% or so of the ASCVD population. But I think part of it is where we are today and then where we could be in the future and I say that because our guidelines that came out, the U.S. cholesterol guidelines in 2018, um, you know, we, we had this, this magic number of 70, uh, and the algorithm went for azetamide first before adding uh, PCSK9 medications. Part of that was, you know, at that time, only one of the two PCSK9 trials had been published. The other was, I think, came out right around that was presented at the same meeting as the 2018 guidelines. So there was a data lag. The cost was more, it was $14,000 a year, and there was not much experience with injectables. As you probably know, the European guidelines are more aggressive, and they recommend in our higher-risk patients um, LDL goals of under 55 and perhaps under 40. And there's been a lot more data about those lower numbers and no floor as to reduction of risk. There's been a few more papers recently about other risk enhancers. And and, and finally, even some more recent thought-provoking at the AHA, again, we had a whole session on what's primary versus secondary prevention. For example, people with, you know, calcium scores of a thousand have an actuarial risk of, of uh, ASCVD events comparable to someone with stable CAD. So I think there's a broader pool of patients that could be potentially appropriate for um, more intensive lipid lowering. And so I think, uh, and also our targets and goals may end up being more uh, aggressive as we learn more. So I think there, there could be a much larger opportunity for, for all of these medications. Yeah, so um, great, great comment. So my follow-up question to you is that do, have you used or do you use or do you even recommend or think that there may be a patient population which may derive a benefit from incremental prescription of PCSK9 on top of statin therapy? Certainly. Uh, and I see several of those, per- particularly those with FH that have um, LDLs that are, you know, maximal statin therapy and still have high LDLs. Some guidance would say less, you know, above 100. Certainly those that I see with ASCVD with LDL above 100, sorry, above 70. Uh, and occasionally even lo- targeting lower. So unquestionably, there are those patients. And I think, 
you know, now it's whether as we get more options, if Inclusion is FDA approved, it's again, it's available in Europe. You know, do you use every six months? Uh, do you use every two weeks? Do you use an oral option? So this is what we'll have to figure out as a field. And part of it, back to maybe our initial discussion about valves and TAVR, you know, what's the patient preference? What's best for them? Cost, tolerability, and all those issues. Um, excellent. So where do you see these? Um, I mean, I, I guess my, my question to you should be, in what percentage of patients do you see, um, you know, um, a preponderance of side effects to injectable PCSK9 for you to then give them the option of an oral PCSK9? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So we always have to temper enthusiasm with reality, right? And so, you know, the the temperance here are twofold before, first, this is a phase two study, we don't have more data. And so this this is not a drug that's FDA approved, but, you know, a good proof of concept, because before this, there was no, as far as I know, an oral PCSK9 uh, version that was that had sort of looked promising like this. Um, the other temperance I'd say is, you know, in outcomes data with the intra, with the subcutaneous, the monoclonal antibodies, we have two, two randomized outcomes trials. I, you know, one wouldn't know why that would be different, but you don't actually know that until you study that with an oral drug. So a couple of words of caution. And, and to your point about proportion, there's not, there's not a high proportion. It's pretty small. The proportion that can't tolerate uh, a subcutaneous it, it is a smaller proportion. Um, you know, if I ballpark based on my clinical experience, it's small, maybe 5%, 10% tops. Um, and, you know, th- there also is some other components. One is just aversion to shots. Again, not, not a high proportion, but in that 5 to 10%, that's probably bundled patients with a side effect, whether that's real or perceived, patients with a, a perceived intolerance or dislike for needles, And there may be some cost issues too. I would not know the pricing of what an oral drug would be relative to a subcutaneous, but again, the $5,400 a year and with some high co-pays to some patients, that's been a bit of a barrier. So again, these are all niche areas, but I'll I'll, I'll come back to, you know, individuals that may end up being a small proportion of individuals, but the ones where we're actually thinking about these are ones that are in high need. So those that again have FH or high risk secondary prevention that have residually high LDL um, so there are always going to be patients that 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 have needs where where having a broader toolkit is valuable to meet those needs. Excellent. No, thanks a lot for uh, today's discussion, Dr. Kara. It's been very enlightening for me, uh, you know, to learn all these nuances in, you know, prevention um, and statin therapy and PCSK9 inhibitor therapy. Also, you know, we talked about innovative healthcare delivery, um, you know, interventions and you know, certainly early surgery for patients with asymptomatic aortic valve stenosis. Do you have any closing remarks for our audience, our listenership? Well, I do. First and foremost, thank you again so much for inviting me. It's been really fun. And I, I, I'm, I'm really glad we got to talk about really a spectrum of studies um, that, that cover the range of, of science and healthcare delivery. Uh, to, to back to where you started, um, you know, I hope you and I get to do this uh, maybe again next year after we see each other in person in Chicago for AHA 2022. I'm optimistic that we will do that and, and hopefully we'll have a lot more to discuss. But again, thank you so much for inviting me today. Well, thanks again for your time and for your expertise and uh, really enjoyed having you on the show. And, you know, hopefully, um, you know, we can do this in person next year in Chicago. Uh, but in, until then, uh, you know, if I don't get to uh, speak to you again, wish 
uh, you and everyone at uh, UT Southwestern. I know I have a lot of friends at UT Southwestern, um, you know, from, from you and Amrish and, and Dharam and Dr. Hill um, to now also Preeti, who's, who was at the clinic and who's now with you, you know, I wish you all a very happy holidays and season's greetings. And, uh, you know, we'll get to have a conversation with you soon. Thank you. You as well. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.